0: That you're here today. I don't know. Has, has anyone told you this morning that they love you? Don't Don't answer that. All right. But I want to tell you today, I love you. Okay. I really do love you. I care about you. Uh, you are my family, and I love you so much, and I care about you so much that today I'm going to tell you the truth. All right. And the truth is found in Romans chapter three. I'm in a series of sermons on what we believe we're talking about doctrine and theology because quite frankly doctrine and theology matter what we believe determines how we behave and today we're going to talk about biblical anthropology which is a big word that basically describes mankind's relationship to a holy God now this is what the world believes the world believes in evolution it says that life began with a primordial germ and then through an accidental mutative process developed into animals and finally into man. That's what the world believes. At Kavanaugh Church, and as a Christian, we believe in Genesis 1:1. We believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right? I had an old Sunday school teacher who used to say all the time, if you can wrap your mind around Genesis 1-1 and by faith believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you can believe the rest of the book. If you've got enough faith to believe that, you can believe the rest of it. And we believe that, that God created something out of nothing. You try to do that. We can't do it. But God created ex nihilo. He made something, the world, out of absolutely nothing. We believe in Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. We believe that God caused a deep sleep to come upon the man. And he took a rib from the man's side and made a woman and said, this is good. Come on, guys. And after he made the woman, the woman completed the man, and the man completed the woman. We believe that Adam and Eve lived in a perfect place, the Garden of Eden. And they had sweet fellowship with God. The Bible tells us they walked with the Lord in the cool of the evening. And they were in great fellowship with the creator of the universe. That is until sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three, the man and the woman disobeyed God, and they sinned, and who of us, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no not one. Their throat is an empty tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a description of all of us. Now we who know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. To demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help me now as I speak this word of truth. And as I attempt to speak it on the outside, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak it into our heart. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that is without Christ and without hope, I pray that today they would believe and their lives be dramatically changed. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, I have three points. First two, bad. Hang in there. Point number three is awesome, all right? Point number one is the summons of God to guilty men. Now, guys, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, God is going to summons the entire human race that has ever lived and will ever live, And each one of us will stand before God and give an account of our life. He is the judge of the universe. One day he summons all men to himself. But you know what? He is calling people today. There is a summons of guilty men to come to God today. Look at verse 23. The verse says, all have sinned. In that little word, all, is gathered up the universality of this divine summons. And everyone is included. To be more specific, the summons of God is to man wherever he is. Look at verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty Before God. He says the whole world is guilty before God. That word world includes every continent and every country. It includes every people group, every tongue, every dialect. You might say, well, does it include the heathen lands who have never heard the fullness of the gospel? Yes, it does. Because Paul has already declared in Romans 1.20 that since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that no one is without excuse. Later he tells us in Romans 2.14 and 15, when Gentiles who do not have the law By nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So, in other words, by light of creation, that God made everything that is, and by light of our own conscience, that God has given to each person, even those who have never heard the gospel, we are in a moral obligation to God. All of us. If the summons therefore covers the pagan world, what about the rest of us? who continuously are under the sound of the gospel preaching through literature and written word and social media. Well, I have to repeat, no one is excluded from this divine summons. It applies to mankind wherever he is. All the world stands guilty before God. That means we do, and the people my daughter is ministering to in Albania do. All the world stands guilty before God. This summons is to man not only wherever he is, but also to man whoever he is. Look at verse 9. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Paul is basically saying that mankind can be divided into two categories, Jews and Gentiles. He describes the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, and it is a shocking picture. He's describing the sinful world, the pagan world, and he says that they are so degraded in sin that their conscience have been seared and they are past feeling. Their hearts are hard. And as he describes the world in Romans chapter 1, I have to step back and say, wow, he's describing America today. Thank God for the Christians who are here and the Christians in our world. But by and large, we are a godless nation. We are a godless world. And it's devastating, but equally devastating is his exposure of the Jew or the religious of his day. With shattering logic, he shows that their boasted righteousness, their alleged privileges, and their vaunted knowledge of God was nothing less than filthy rags in the sight of God. Listen to me, church. Before God, a religious person is just as sinful as a reprobate. You can have all the religion you want. You can attend church from daylight till dusk. You can even be baptized in every baptistry in town. But it's not going to change your heart. Only a right relationship with Jesus can change the human heart. So no matter how religious you want to be without Christ, you're doomed. This summons of God is to man wherever he is, man whoever he is, and to man whatever he is. 22 and 23 say, for there is no difference for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. In other words, you can't explain away your sinfulness. In terms of difference of temperament and education and environment. And no matter how much you want to blame your parents, you can't. No matter how much you want to blame society, you can't. Your teachers, you can't. Your church, you can't. You're the sinner. You're responsible. God has labeled all of us as sinners. Now, I understand there may be differences of degree, but there is no difference in the fact of our sinfulness before a holy God. And this same holy God summons all men and women, wherever they are, whoever they are, and whatever they are. All have sinned. That includes you. Gloom, despair, agony on me. It gets worse. Point number two, the sentence of God on guilty men. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, as I study this passage and exegete this text, there are two important considerations of God's verdict on mankind. And they're really illustrated by the use of the tenses which the Apostle Paul uses in this verse. He says, all have sinned. That is in the perfect tense. And it indicates man's fallen nature before God. He goes on to say, and fall short of the glory of God. That is in the present continuous tense, and it suggests man's practice before God. Now, what all that means is this. Number one, man is a sinner by nature, and number two, man is a sinner by practice. First of all, man is a sinner by nature. All have sinned. To be exact, every one of us has already sinned in our forefather Adam. When Adam blew it, he blew it not only for himself, he blew it for you. Literally, in Adam, you have sinned. The Apostle Paul argues when he says this in Romans 5, 12. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. David expressed the same truth when he wrote Psalms 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I'll never forget in seminary, one of my professors explaining this said, An apple tree produces nothing but apples, so sinful parents produce nothing but sinful offspring. Okay? Now, they're precious when they're first born, aren't they? I mean, they really are. Nothing is more precious than a little bitty baby. They're awesome, but then they grow up. And have, have you ever realized that, you know what, you don't have to teach a little two-year-old to be naughty. They just do it instinctively. Why? Because all of us have that sin nature inside of us. And since we are the children of Adam, the first sinner, we carry in ourselves the very nature of the one who begat us. We're sinners by nature. This, then, is God's sentence upon man. He's a sinner by nature, and no attempt to rationalize that is going to change it. (laughs) You can't. It's who you are. But not only are we sinners by nature, number two, we're sinners by practice. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Literally, that verse should be read, and are falling short of the glory of God. Consciously, continually, we're falling short of God's standards. Scholars tell us that the the phrase fall short was literally taken from the race course. In other words, to come short is to be left behind in the race, not to reach the goal, which for us is the glory of God. And it represents us falling short of God's standards, of God's holiness, and of God's purpose. Paul illustrated this vividly. In verse number 10, when he quoted Psalms 14, verse 1, and said, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he proceeds to show that a man is a sinner by practice in four very specific ways. And he's describing us. Okay, so listen up. This is a description of mankind. It's a description of you. Number one, he says, mankind is seriously warped in mind. Our thinking is messed up. Verse 11, there is none who understands. Church, sin has so invaded our intellectual minds that we cannot think straight, let alone appreciate the deep things of God. The Apostle Paul said this in another way when he spoke in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. When we were talking of of numerology, the Holy Spirit, a few weeks ago, we discovered that the only way we can truly understand the truths that are found in the Word of God is when we receive Christ and have the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our life. That's the only way you can understand the things of God. And this explains to me why sinners, that is unregenerate people, scoff at Christianity and regard the gospel as nothing but foolishness. Because it is foolishness to them. Think of Sherry's song. The guy on the airplane, he thought the Bible was nothing but foolishness. Why? He was seeing it from the human perspective. But when Jesus changes our mind, he changes our thinking. And we can understand biblical truth. Not only is mankind seriously warped in mind, he is desperately wicked in heart. Verse 11, there is none who seeks after God. Even though man's heart is restless for God and it will not be at peace until he rests in God, the paradox is this that in his foolishness and wickedness, man refuses to seek after God. The one thing that can change his life is not the one thing he is pursuing. We will try everything else other than the one thing. And it amazes me of the synthetic substitutes that we turn to to try to give us the only thing God can give us. Why? Because our hearts are wicked. No wonder Jeremiah exclaims, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Number three, mankind is hopelessly wayward in will. Look at verse 12. It says, they have all gone out of the way. The prophet Isaiah spoke it even more vividly when he wrote in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I haven't been around sheep very much, but they tell me sheep are pretty simple-minded. They're pretty, can I use the word stupid? I used to get in trouble for using that word from the pulpit. Angie, close your ears. Sheep are stupid, and so are we. So are we. We go down the wrong road. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. It's a broad way. It's an easy way. It's a nice-looking way. But it's the way that leads to destruction. For narrow is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And few there be that walk that way. Number four, mankind is radically wrong in life. Verse 12, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then quoting the psalmist, Paul goes on to show the, the radical wrongness expressing itself in our life through our speech, which is disgusting, verses 13 and 14, through acts, which are destructive, verses 15 and 16, and then through lives, which are destitute of God, verses 17 and 18. I mean, our lives are messed up. (laughs) We're radically wrong. And here then is the divine pronouncement and sentence upon guilty man. By nature and by practice, we are sinners And we continue to sin with impunity. As the sentence is spoken from the divine throne, every, listen to me, every mouth is shut and all the world becomes guilty before a holy God. This is shattering to the human pride and it's very frightening to the sensitive soul. You're guilty. And let me tell you, when you stand before him on judgment day, there's going to be no arguing. You don't argue with that judge. When he pronounces sentence upon you, it is pronounced. And listen, I can't say it any clearer than this. You are a sinner by nature and by choice. You are lost in your sin. And unless you do something about it, you are going to die not only a physical death, but a spiritual death, and not only that, an eternal death. Without Jesus in your heart, you're doomed for hell for all of eternity. I love you. So I'm telling you that. 32 years ago, I was a young seminary student, Fort Worth, Texas. Angie and I lived in Fort Worth. I was pastoring a little church, Western Hills. I've told you about that church before. When we first went there, there was only eight people. But, you know, God really blessed over the four years we were there, and, and we got new people into the church. And we were so excited when new people would come to the church. I mean, it was just it was an awesome thing, especially if they were a, a new young couple. And I'll never forget 32 years ago this this young couple came in our church, a little shotgun church. The 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 front door was really the back door of the sanctuary, and you came in that door, and and man, I saw them come in. They were a good-looking young couple in their probably mid-twenties, late 20s. They they were professionally dressed. Uh, he, he was a sharp-looking guy. She was a good-looking lady. But I tell you what, she was large and in charge. She was large because she was pregnant, okay? Are you with me? All right. All right. She was probably four or five months pregnant, but no doubt she was in charge. He just kind of followed along like a little puppy dog, you know, doing what she said to do. But he followed her into church, and, man, they came for a couple of weeks. They even put money in the offering plate. Man, I was so, I was excited. I was pumped to have them, man. It was great. Back in those days, we were nice to everybody that came in the door because we needed them, man. You know what I'm saying? We wanted everybody in there. And they came for a couple of weeks and they were so positive and they had such good energy about themselves and and they were nice to me and nice to Angie. And man, we were just excited they were there. But then the third Sunday came. I don't know. I preached a sermon from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, I preached back then the only way I knew how to preach. I preached hard, and I tell you, I preached on hell, and I told them what I just told you that you're a sinner. Without Jesus, you don't have any hope. Without Jesus, you're going to hell. But I said it with more energy because I was younger back then. And the only way I knew how to preach, man. End of the service I was standing at the back door. That's what I did back then. Everybody went out that door and I was standing back there shaking hands and the old, old lady was come back. That was such a good message, Pastor. We we love you and Miss Angie so much. And I thought it was a good sermon. And all my sermons back then were good, man. I mean. But then here she came. He was right behind her. She wasn't smiling. And she did not shake my hand. This is what she said to me. Do you really believe that? Now, she caught me off guard. I I, I said, what you just said, do you really believe that? I said, well, yes, ma'am. I mean, I was preaching the Bible. I believe that. She said, 32 years ago, I'll never forget. She said, well, I don't believe that. And she raised her voice when she said it. I don't believe that. And I don't believe God is like that. And I don't think God looks at us as sinners and I don't think God is going to send us to hell. And I'm not going to raise my baby in a church that believes that. (laughs) I was young and stupid and I said to her, well, I don't guess you're going to be coming back to this church then. and she didn't. <laughs> Hang on to that story cuz I'm going to come back to it at the end. Now again, it is pretty depressing, isn't it? Really, what I, what I've just told you is very disheartening. That God has summoned the whole world to stand before him, and as he looks at mankind, he pronounces sentence upon us, you are guilty for all of sin. Man, But the cool thing about it is this. There is Genesis chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 20. God has come up with a plan of redemption. He has a solution to our problem. Listen to verses 23 through 25. And even though this is kind of theological and doctrine related, understand... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith. The breathtaking truth of the gospel is that the very God who has summoned and sentenced a guilty world has Himself stepped off of His judgment throne. He has disrobed himself of his judicial robes and he has clothed himself with the garment of salvation in order to redeem and reconcile and justify condemned sinners like you and me. That's the good news. That that is the glorious message of hope and life, and so we are brought face to face with this very doctrinal word, justification. A word that provides the solution to the problem mankind has. To be justified is to be made righteous. To appear in a favorable light in the presence of God's holiness. To be acquitted of all of our guilt and to be reckoned as men and women who have never sinned justification, very simple definition. When God justifies us, He makes us just as if we had never sinned. Consider three aspects of this justifying work which God makes available to us through His Son, Jesus. Number one, God justifies the sinner graciously. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace. You see, in His capacity as the judge of the universe... He blots out all of our sins. He forgives our original sins as well as our actual transgressions. He obliterates all evidence of evil against us. And this He does freely as a gift and graciously as an act of unmerited favor. Well, glory, hallelujah. You tell me what could be better than that. In other words, we don't deserve an ounce of it. But it's because of His grace that He gives it to us. Number two, God justifies the sinner righteously. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation By his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, guys, it must be understood that justification is by grace, but it's also by blood. It's by grace, but it's by blood. Somebody had to pay for the penalty of the broken law and someone had to suffer the consequences of the cross. And the only acceptable person in all of the universe who could have done that was none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. He not only fulfilled the demands of the law in his life, but he also suffered the consequences of that broken law in his death. And by shedding his blood, he paid the full penalty of our sin. In order that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So church, listen. God justifies the sinner graciously. He does it righteously. But God also justifies the sinner conditionally. Conditionally. Verse 24, being justified. Verse 25, by blood and through faith. You see, all that is necessary to make a man righteous before God has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing can be added to that or subtracted from that for God's plan of redemption to work. In other words, justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. But you've got to get that faith part. Our problem, we're in a huge mess. We're sinners and we can't do anything about it. God's solution, Jesus Christ. His shed blood will pay the penalty for our sins. On the provision that we believe. You've got to believe. We believe, man. We believe. That's the only way. That's the only way I can be justified. That's the only way I can be made right before God is if I believe. 32 years ago, that lady in Fort Worth did not believe her little baby would be a man 32 years of age today. You know what, it really makes my heart sad to think that there is a young man out there 32 years of age, and unless unless the good news has somehow penetrated his heart, he is guilty before God. Because his parents refused to raise him in a church that told him he was a sinner by nature and choice. And he needed salvation. I I can't imagine what she was thinking. Maybe maybe she didn't want the condemnation of her own sin. I, I don't know what her excuse is, but let me tell you, it's not good enough. And even though that young man will one day stand before God and give an account of his own life, I believe God is going to hold his mama a little bit responsible for not telling him the truth. you got to believe. That's what faith is. you got to believe. I don't want to dwell on that lady and her baby. Let me tell you a good story about a little kid who did believe. How do I know that kid believed? Because I am he. Six years old, Westside Free Will Baptist Church, Midland, Texas. Sunday night, Brother Zellers preached. I came to the altar. I didn't know doctrine. I was six years old. I didn't know theology. I couldn't even say the word. I was six years old. I could not explain propitiation, justification, redemption. I didn't know any of that stuff. You know what I did know? I was lost. And even though I had not committed those horrific sins, I was still a sinner. And as he preached and gave the invitation, here's what I realized. Not knowing any theology, any doctrine, here's what I realized. If I didn't accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and I died that night, I would go to hell. So I came to the altar, tears running down my face. He said, William, what's wrong? I said, Brother Zellers, I don't want to go to hell. He said, son, we can take care of that. And from the book of Romans, he led me through the Romans road to salvation. And that night I was gloriously saved. That night my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And based on my faith that night at the Westside Free Will Baptist Church in Midland, Texas, I can tell you I am saved. I am redeemed. I am a child of God. And if I died today, I know I would go to heaven. Do you know that? Oh, preacher, I don't know that any of us can really know. Contrary, Yes, you can know. We tell you, you better know. Yes. You better know. All it takes is faith. Childlike faith. Would you believe? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to believe today. Help us to come and confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And if there's one in this room who has never accepted your terms of salvation, I pray that today they would come and be saved. Lord, for that Christian who is here, who is away from you, I pray that they would come back to you today, Lord. Repent of their backslidden condition and be restored. Lord, for the rest of us, we all know people who are lost without Christ and without hope. They may be family members, kids, grandkids, aunts, uncles, cousins. We work with people or go to school with people that we know are lost. Lord, would you help us get so concerned about their salvation that we specifically come today and pray for them. Lord, may we come and pray for the future of our church, that your hand of blessing would be on us, and as we reach out, giving hope to a hopeless world, that you would bless us and use us. And Lord, for people who just need to come and and just pray and get close to you, Give them freedom to do that this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand. They're going to sing.